0: Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. Between 1943 and 1945, the U.S. Navy operated Naval Air Station Wildwood in Cape May, New Jersey, as a training center for dive bomber squadrons. Thousands of pilots were trained there, and during the peak training months of mid-1944 to early 1945, the air station was home to over 200 warplanes. From a historical perspective, NAS Wildwood is a fascinating study in American mobilization and U.S. naval warfare doctrine. To tell us more about NAS Wildwood, we welcome Jim Crom back to the podcast. He is a naval aviation historian and a member of the Board of Trustees for NAS Wildwood. Welcome, sir, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So it always fascinates me how quickly so many airfields were set up across the United States at the start of World War II. Can you start us off with a brief overview of the 1938 Civil Aeronautics Act and what role this act played in U.S. mobilization?
1: Well, basically up until that point, all the airfields at all weren't regulated at all. Everybody had their own systems and, and things like that. It was very dangerous. There were a lot of accidents. So the Act of 38 basically federalized and regulated aviation across the United States. It established aircraft traffic control and schools to train personnel. It studied best practices for safety. It established the minimum length of runway it also provided for upgrades in existing airfields and the establishment of new airfields. Uh, many municipalities wanted these airfields because it supported their commerce. Mail and people could be moved more efficiently using aircraft. But there was another act that was associated with this act that came about in 1939 that you may not be aware of. The war in Euro- Europe was raging, and Japan had invaded China. We had huge shortage of pilots at that time, too. So President Roosevelt, mindful of the war in Europe and in China, signed the Civilian Pilot Training Act of 1939. Now, this was part of his New Deal program, and it established civilian pilot training schools at airfields within 10 miles of colleges and universities. It also provided for training schools for navigation and aircraft maintenance. Those who graduated from these schools were key to fulfilling our military needs in aviation for both the Navy and the Army. Since the aviation cadets, they could be put on the fast track in their training. So that's that's basically how we were able to have enough pilots. You know, at the beginning of the war, we were still short, but we had like a cadet, you know, a, a group of, of people that had been trained.
0: How does the June 1942 Battle of Midway influence U.S. naval warfare doctrine? And what impact does this have then on the training of all of these new Navy pilots?
1: Well, it was sort of a a subtle change. The combat doctrine that we had in our Navy from the 30s until 1943 stipulated that there be four squadrons assigned to each aircraft carrier. Uh, There was a scouting and bombing squadron, a torpedo squadron, and a fighting squadron. Now, what their jobs, the scouting and the bombing squadrons both flew the same SBD dive bombers at the time, and they basically could do each other's jobs. In a perfect coordinated attack, and this didn't happen very often, especially at the beginning of the war, what was supposed to happen was the scouting squadrons were supposed to go out and hunt the enemy. They flew sector searches searches to find them. Once they found the enemy fleet, they would report back to the carrier what its position, course, and speed were. While well, then the scouting squadrons would probably would be armed with bombs along with the bombing squadrons, and they would be launched from the carrier along with the torpedo squadron and the fighting squadron. Now, the fighting squadron's job was basically to protect the torpedo and the bombing squadrons from the enemy aircraft and fighters that were trying to shoot them down to save their fleet. Now, in a perfect coordinated attack, what would ha- happen is as they approached the target, our dive bombers in both the scouting and bombing squadrons would climb to about twelve to 14,000 feet, while the torpedo squadron was flying to about seven miles from the target. When the torpedo squadrons were ready, the bombing squadrons would go into what was called their pushover, which was a 70-degree dive. Now, you wonder why, why a 70-degree dive. Well, the closest to 90 degrees was the best if you were attacking a moving target. But the problem was the tails of the planes would actually flip over at 90 degrees. So 70 degrees was the optimum dive angle, you know, for for the attack. So as they would dive from 14,000 feet, the backseater, radio man, Gunner, would look at the altimeter and call out every 1,000 feet. So it would be 14,000, 13,000, 12,000. As he approached about 5,000 feet, he'd call it out at every 500 feet. At about 2,500 feet, the pilot would, they called it Pickle the Bomb, and then pull out at low level. And it was hoped that as those bombs hit the ships, it would disorient the gunners just as the torpedo planes were coming in to make their low and slow attack. And they were basically sitting ducks to the anti-aircraft gunners on their ships. Then they would get together and try to get out of there, while the fighters continued to ward off the enemy aircraft as they were coming. And that was what happened. Now, at the Battle of Coral Sea and the Battle of Midway in June in, of nineteen forty-two, it demonstrated that the torpedo attacks were very ineffective. Part of the problem was our torpedoes; they were terrible. They were too short, and then they did—they didn't. Follow the track to the all the way to the ships. So they had to be dropped close to the enemy shipping where the gunners could hit them easily. They also would detonate as they hit the water. Some of them would go too deep. They they were a terrible problem. So not one hit at the Battle of Midway was done by torpedo planes. There was no damage to the enemy shipping. It was all done by the dive bombers who came in. And all actually all four aircraft carriers that the Japanese had at the Battle of Midway were sunk by dive bombing. Now, at this point, all Navy pilots, after receiving their wings selected and were selected for carrier duty, were sent to schools teaching the basics of dive bombing, scouting, and torpedo and fighting. So they they received some training in all of those things. They would then be assigned to a specific squadron type based on the scores and the impressions of their instructors as to which type of squadron they'd be best suited for. Then they would receive further training in their squadrons that they were assigned to. Now, this was like pre-war, basically. Once the war started, once they were assigned to a carrier, there was no time because the carriers were going into battle. There was no time for their squadron leaders and the more experienced guys to train these people. So what they would do is instead of going out to the carrier right away, they would be sent to a base that would give them more training in their area. And in this case at Wildwood, it was dive bombing. And that's what NAS Wildwood's job was, was teach them and help them learn to work together as well as learn the skills of dive bombing.
0: Tell us about the origins of NAS Wildwood. Why was that particular location chosen and how quickly is the air station set up?
1: Well, if you ever saw a map of South Jersey around the Cape, the Cape area, Cape May uh, County area there, it's surrounded by water on one side, on the, on the Western side, we had the, we have the Delaware Bay on the Eastern side, we have the vast Atlantic ocean. So it was a very good place to teach dive bombing, especially if you were a carrier person, the best place for you to train would be near water. You wouldn't want to be training in Iowa or Colorado or someplace like that. The other thing was that we had a lot of naval air stations located all along the East coast. There were bases at like Quonset Point, Rhode Island, NAS Atlantic City, NAS Norfolk, as well as at Oceania at, at mid-war, that was opened also. So that's basically what they would do. Now, the origin of the field, basically, it, in 1939, the Navy, there was an, already a little airport there in Cape May, Cape May County Airport. In 1939, the Navy leased the airport from the county for only a dollar per acre. In April of 42, 42, uh, the Still County Airport was expanded, and in November of 42, Navy construction began on the Naval Air Station, and it took about nine months to complete Now, here's a funny thing. In April of 1943, the still uncompleted Naval Air Station was commissioned as Naval Air Station Rio Grande. And that's because the area where the airport is, is in Rio Grande, New Jersey. Uh, But all their mail was going to Texas (laughs) because of the name. So they switched it to the next nearest city, which was on the ocean side, Naval Air Station Wildwood, uh, because the mail was, you know, because of the mail problem that they had. The Navy, as I said, chose the area because there was a lot of water there and and where its location was uh, to other air air bases that were in the area. At first, they were chosen to form up whole squadrons, you know, like the Navy, the the torpedo, the fighting squadrons and all. But after about two months, it was totally designated for dive bombing and teaching dive bombing to pilots.
0: Can you describe typical daily operations there?
1: Well, the pilots and the radio man gunners were given instruction in classrooms uh, that were in the hangar, basically, there. And often, Their instructors were guys that had been at the Battle of Coral Sea and Midway and had experience in combat. See, none of these pilots, very few of these pilots had any combat experience, especially earlier in the war. Now, they were given practice in navigating over water, which is very difficult. You know, as an Army pilot, you had reference points like the railroads or rivers and things like that. But over water, all you have is water there. So navigation and especially geometry in terms of uh, taking... Taking off from your aircraft carrier, going to an initial point, going to the target, and then with that carrier still moving on a course, finding your way back to the carrier had a lot to do. And most of the radio signals at that time were line of sight. In other words, you had to be really high up to be able to see that carrier at a distance. Otherwise, you're, you re- they wouldn't receive your radio uh, broadcast. So they had uh, actually they actually had radio silence if it were in a battle area anyway. But they were given practice in navigating over water. The backseat gunners were given more gunnery practice. Targets had been set up along the Delaware Canal using seashells as outlines because they were white and they and they made with like concentric circles there like a target. And the pilots would go and and they would practice their pushover and their dives and their rendezvous with the other pilots. Towers were set up actually near the target so that pilots could be scored in their accuracy and how well they did. They were instructed in the seven elements of dive bombing, which was basically the climb and approach to 12,000 to 14,000 feet, the break or breaking away from their fellow pilots, diving at a 70 degree angle, compensating for drift and holding onto that target and the drop at around 2,000 feet and the pullout. And then they learned how to withdraw and rendezvous with the other planes in their squadrons. So there was a lot involved there. It wasn't an easy thing for a lot of these pilots to learn this. And it was was a really hard syllabus to follow, especially the math and the geometry. Because if you lost track of your other pilots and you were over the ocean, It wasn't an easy thing to find that aircraft carrier, especially if the aircraft carrier had studied submarines and things like that. So all those things could be practiced around this area because we were in proximity to the ocean and all that. So that's what they did.
0: So we've talked, obviously, about dive bombers quite a bit. What kinds of bombers are there for training? And were there any other types of aircraft?
1: During World War II, the Navy practiced two types of bombing. There was glide bombing, in which was more of a level bombing, and there was dive bombing. Now, glide bombing was best used for stationary targets, like if you were attacking buildings and things like that. Dive bombing was best used against moving targets such as ships. The the plane that we started the war out was actually a pre-war design. It was the SBD Dauntless. Uh, A lot of times the pilots would put nicknames on them and they called it slow but deadly to stand for the SBD. But it was loved by its pilots. It had split flaps that were perforated so that in the dive, it really held that plane pretty steady. Some pilots I spoke to and interviewed said that it was almost as steady in a dive as it was flying level. They loved the plane. Its drawback was that it was an early war, it was a pre-war design and that the wings didn't fold. See, our Navy liked to have the wings folding on the the airplanes so they could store more of them on the aircraft carriers. It also was pretty slow and it was hard for the fighters to follow them because the fighters would almost have to weave because they were faster and they would use up more fuel. So they were looking for another plane that would would be better for that, that that would be have more speed, possibly, and could maybe ha- have more bombs and would have folding wings. So around mid-war, the Curtis Company started delivering the uh, SB, which stood for Scout Bomber, 2 uh, C, which was a, the C stood for Curtis, and it was their second model. The Helldiver would be the replacement for the Dauntless. Well, the pilots that had flown Dauntlesses didn't like the Helldivers at all. Hull divers were came to Wildwood. Also, the Hell diver was larger and heavier, could hold you know some more bombs, but it had folding and it had folding wings and it had an internal bomb bay rather than have the bomb exterior of the, the airplane. It also had heavier guns, but it was a dog to fly. Uh, the pilots said you know it was everything you could do to keep the pot the the plane in the air. Uh, so it really wasn't a very good design pilot-wise. They didn't like flying it at all. It was disliked by many. The the pilot's nicknames for this one were the Beast, and on its uh, SB2C uh, nomenclature, they called it the uh, son of a B second class, basically, because they didn't like it. But it was used because of the advantage and the Navy had, had started to uh, replace the SPDs with that. Now, as the war progressed. What happened was the Japanese shipping was less of a threat. You know, we had sunk most of the enemy aircraft carriers. The problem now, especially very late in the war, like in the end of 1945 or 44 and the beginning of 1945, land-based kamikazes were a larger threat. Now, these were suicide plans. Uh, different types. They were loaded with explosives whose pilots would then crash into the aircraft carriers, ordering, you know, in order to sink them. By this time, our Navy and Marines were flying Corsair and Hellcat fighters. Now it was found that the Corsair could carry almost as much ordnance as the SBD and Hell divers. So some carriers, and that's one thing our Navy did is they They didn't stick to, like, the Japanese did that. They pretty much stuck to the way they always did things. Our Navy would adapt. And so what they decided to do was they reorganized the squadrons on some of the aircraft carriers. Uh, So they would only have two squadrons, a fighting squadron made up of the Hellcats and a VBF or bombing fighting squadron of Corsairs that could support the ground troops by strafing and dive and glide bombing. Now, the invent of like on radar, they picked up a large group of kamikazes coming in. Both squadrons could be utilized as fighters to shoot down the attackers. Uh, by early 1945, Corsairs were starting to come into Wildwood to train the Corsair pilots on on dive bombing and, and bombing tactics and all.
0: And this training is very dangerous. I mean, I've read at some points that there were weekly accidents. Are there fatalities at NES Wildwood?
1: Well, yes, this was common in all aviation training, in the Army or the Navy. In fact, I I just looked up, you know, to prepare for this podcast, about a third of all aviation personnel who died in World War II died in accidents. In the two years Naval Air Station Wildwood operated, there were 194 accidents and 42 uh, known deaths uh, that occurred. According to the the records that we've looked up, some accidents were mechanical, some were mid-air crashes, and some were due to target fixation. Now, this is specific, you know, pretty much to dive bombing, although it did happen with fighters that were strafing. Target fixation is the tendency for the pilot to intensely focus on the target and not pull out in time and then basically go right into the ground. So a lot of these accidents, it was a very dangerous thing. For pilots to learn and dive bombing was one of the most dangerous.
0: There's no way to learn, though. I guess unless you're practicing like that.
1: Today we have simulators. The pilots can go on, and if if they do go through like their attack on a simulator, nobody gets hurt. We didn't have simulators in those days. It, you had to learn by doing, as you said.
0: At its peak, NAS Wildwood hosted approximately 600 officers and 2,500 enlisted personnel. Now, we've talked about some of these pilots. Tell us about some of the other servicemen and women that were based at the air station.
1: Sure. Well, all squadrons had what was called a carrier air service unit or CASU that contained personnel that supplied parts, fuel, ammunition, and maintenance to the aircraft. All the ingredients that were necessary to keep the planes in the air and ready to go. Uh, There was also a fire fire and crash personnel there. That would constantly train on putting out aviation fires, which were much harder than a, another fire because you couldn't use water. You had to use foam and, and other things. Uh, we also needed food services to feed feed the personnel that were there, transportation and clerical uh, personnel, many of whom were women that were, were stationed there and civilian women that were were there. There were also gunnery training personnel. There was a large number of logistics personnel. Now, basically, their jobs were to keep track of the inventory at the air station and replenish the supplies and materials needed. You know, nobody wanted to say, OK, we're going out today on a hop to dive bomb. Well, sorry, we don't have any bombs. You know, they had to have those things and pretty much plan on what was needed in the next month or two and get those supplies in there. Logistics was always a problem with Army, Navy and and aviation also.
0: The MacArthur Memorial is here in Norfolk, Virginia, and World War II had a very big impact on the development of the city. So question for you about NAS Wildwood. Did the local community welcome the presence of the air station? (laughs) Yes,
1: well, you have to realize there were already, even before the war and long before the war, uh, other military bases in the area. We had Lakehurst with the blimps. That was there when the Hindenburg went down. That was a naval air station. Uh, there was also naval air station Atlantic City there before the war, and the Coast Guard actually had a base in Cape May and still does. So the community really did welcome the presence of the air station. It meant jobs. It meant income to the community. The naval personnel spent money in the stores, the restaurants and the hotels nearby. It provided jobs for a lot of the people that were there. The air station was also supportive of the community. And as a museum, by the way, we still are. Having open houses uh, on Navy Day in October, they had air shows and they always had meetings like monthly meetings with the local community and leaders uh i guess a lot of it was pr you know there you know like if there were any problems they they were taken care of so yes uh there was much support for the for the navy at that at at that time
0: so what happens to nas wildwood when the war ends
1: well when the war ends and it started you know that they started shipping out like things as was going. We had a lot of buildings uh, that were built there and barracks and things like that. So many of the buildings were auctioned off and the airport was reverted back to the county ownership eventually uh, as Cape May County Airport. Uh, There was a guy named Dr. Ralph Cox who uh, occupied Hangar One, which is the hangar where the museum is right now which basically it's an all-wood hangar as because they didn't have a lot of steel during the war. It's as big as two football fields. So it's a large, large hangar. Well, he bought up uh, surplus DC-4s and DC-6 airplanes that were military planes, rebuilt them as passenger planes, and started the United States Overseas Airlines. And that ran from about 1947 to 1964. There were a couple other small businesses that were in there after that time. But by 1996, our hangar had been abandoned and in disrepair and being wood, you know, needed maintenance, you know, to keep it going. And actually there was a collapse in the roof of, it was about 50 by 100 foot section of the roof had collapsed and caved in. Now our president, who's our president still To this day, Dr. Joseph Salvatore and his wife Annie formed a nonprofit organization that purchased the building, the the hangar, and restored it through grants uh, that they were able to get. It's the largest, as I said, the largest wooden structure in in New Jersey and it's listed on the National Registry of Historic Places. Uh, The foundation also created a museum to honor the 42 airmen who died while training there at Wildwood in World War II.
0: Well, tell us a little bit more about the museum and the foundation today.
1: Well, we've continued to be a nonprofit and dedicated to the 42 uh, servicemen who gave their lives here in World War II. The museum has really grown over the years uh, in the number of exhibits that we have, in the number of aircraft in its inventory. The hangar, like I said, being a wooden structure, has needed upkeep and repair over the years. Uh, the museum has been in existence. And this has been funded through mostly donations and grants that we were able to receive, lucky to receive, actually. You know, it's funny, other museums do w- well all year round. But because we're located in a seashore area, and a tourist area, our exhibits are different from other museums in that we're family-friendly. With many interactive exhibits that are really hands-on, the kids can climb on a lot of the things, which is really a little different that it's not roped up. Even the airplanes, you can walk right up to the airplanes and actually touch them, you know, and see what they're like, which is different than a lot of – we actually do better – in getting the public to come in to see us on rainy and windy days because that they don't go to the beach, they, they would come to see. So it, it really offers a, a great alternative to a lot of people that are down the shore for something to see that they normally may not uh, be able to. Our aircraft that, like in our museum, are range from pre-war to modern aircraft. Even though we were a World War II facility, uh, besides a World War II F6F Hellcat that we just got in the last two years, and a TVM Avenger that we have, which is World War II planes, we also have a Korean War Chinese Mig. We have an F14 Tomcat. You don't know, if you, if you saw Top Gun, uh, we have an F16 Fighting Falcon, and we also try to tell the story uh, and have exhibits. Of veterans and men and women who were actually stationed at Naval Air Station Wildwood during the war. We're developing an interactive science and technology exhibit, a steam exhibit, that it isn't all aviation related. You know, that we have we have a actually a large eye that kids can actually walk through and see the different parts. So we offer a lot of different things there to help help that. Our museum is also has a great store that offers items appropriate for children and adults. Uh, we have special events that support the museum all through the uh, the year and the community during the year. Uh, information, I, I would say that to the public, information is available on our website, which is usnasw.org. We're also on Facebook. So it's a great place to visit. Uh, you can spend the day there. Very friendly place to be and bring the kids.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.